0: We are wrapping up our series on 1 Peter that we've been talking about over the last eight weeks. We've looked at this and, and talked about this as our living hope. That's the phrase that Peter uses at the outset of this letter to describe our positioning in Christ. And so if you have been a part of this, if you've been with us over these last eight weeks together, then you know that Peter has been encouraging and instructing us as followers of Jesus regarding really critical things in this pursuit of Jesus, things like our identity. He talks about how we are to see ourselves as foreigners and, and exiles, um, how we talked about this in the very first week as that sense of homesickness that we experience here and now as we long for our ultimate home, one day where we'll be. But he, but he also talks about our purpose here, That this isn't just some someday I'm going to fly away and I'll be with Jesus in heaven. we got a job to do. And so he says things like this. He says in chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful life. Later in that same chapter, he says to the church, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits you. So he talks about our purpose. And then he talks about, he instructs us in, how we understand and respond to suffering. Particularly, suffering that that results because of our faith in Jesus. So this church that he's writing to, they're being persecuted. Persecuted. And that really makes up the bulk of the back half of this letter. This is what Peter is talking about most of the time. So suffering may not seem like the ideal topic to talk about on Mother's Day, um, but depending on the stage of parenting you're in, it it could be the perfect topic to talk about. (laughs) And we're going to look at this this last section of Peter's letter here. We're going to look at how he instructs the church, what he wants to leave us with. And what emerges as I read this, is in this last portion of the letter, you, you gain this sense of, of Peter's pastoral heart for the people that he's writing to. I mean, that's been evident throughout, but to me it just sort of emerges in this last section. But I also there's also this kind of parental element to it, where there's this reassuring voice of instruction that inspires and builds confidence. It seems like just yesterday, um, but it was nearly 30 years ago, that my parents were dropping me off at Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago and, and leaving. And I remember, I can tell you, I, the, the uncertainty that I felt, the anxiety that I was experiencing, and I was a pretty like um, independent kid. It actually caught me off guard. But I did not want them to leave. Or if they did, I wanted to go with them. And I remember my mom and dad looking at me, looking me in the eye and saying, son, you're ready for this. You, you can do this. We believe in you. You're prepared for this. But we're only five hours away, right? If you need us, we can get there. And then fast forward 28 years. Last fall, dropping off my oldest daughter at school for the very first time, leaving her in that place, watching the same anxiety, the same fear sort of emerge in her, looking at Sherry and I as we look her in the eye and we're saying, you're ready for this. You can do this. We believe in you. And I'm only three hours away. Right? If you need me, I can get here in three hours. As parents, we... we. We do this, we experience this, whether it's in in the parental role or as a child, this idea of encouragement or exhortation backed by promise. And that's that's what Peter leaves us with here as as he wraps up this letter. It's exhortation, instruction, encouragement backed by promise. So this is 1 Peter chapter 5. This is how Peter wraps up his letter. He says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's suffering who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing. And as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you be alert and of sober mind your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering and the god of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. I think that that Peter, as he's closing this letter to the church, there are a few things that he wants to leave them with. And I want to look, I want to look first at these, what I'm calling exhortations. They're their instructions, their encouragements, but they carry greater weight than that, and then as we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the promise that backs them. So the first exhortation, the first thing he tells us there, he says, be shepherds, be shepherds. I think many of you know that I have spent most of my career in ministry as a youth pastor, doing student ministry in the first 20 years or so, and um, over the course of that time, I had any number of of opportunities to lead students on retreats and trips uh, both globally and locally. And it was a privilege, I loved it. It was all part of of that ministry. And it was some of that is where I saw the greatest fruit in students' lives. But there's also a certain level of um, challenge that comes with taking 40 some high school students through an airport to get them to the next plane on their way to Ecuador or whatever. and, um, And every once in a while, when you have that group of students and they're all wearing the same t-shirt, like, there's a presence that you carry, right? I had one businessman tell me, he's getting on the airplane and he said, there's nothing that those of us who travel for business fear more than getting on a plane and seeing 40 high school kids wearing the same shirt. Like, you're like <laughs> this is going to be a long flight. And occasionally I would have somebody come up and, and find us as adult leaders and say to us, hey, who's, who's in charge here? which that, you, your stomach kind of sank in that moment, because <laughs> usually one of two things was going on. Somebody did something that they shouldn't have done, and therefore I am sort of guilty by association, right? Or actually, what, what, what was more common for me than that, that example is on occasion, some adult would come up and say, you know what, these students have actually exemplified maturity, and I just want to tell you, your kids are doing a great job, and, you know, and just kind of like Build you up because there's this association that you feel in this position of leadership between you and the people that you're responsible to care for. So Peter is at these wrapping up this letter. He says to the leaders of the church, be shepherds of God's flock. Be shepherds of those that are under your care. Again, Peter's dressing here the elders, the ones who have been given the responsibility for a section of God's flock. In fact, this, that, imagery of the the shepherd is the most common metaphor that Scripture uses throughout the entire Bible to describe the role of a leader for those that they're responsible for, a shepherd caring for their sheep. King David famously talks about his own relationship with God using the same terminology. In Psalm 23, he says this. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. So David's role, his understanding of what it meant to be king, to be a leader of Israel, his responsibility as a shepherd was informed and shaped by his relationship to the ultimate shepherd. So the role of the shepherd to the sheep is one of provision and protection. For the for Peter, remember this this call to be a shepherd is personal for him. If you go back to the Gospel of John, when John records Jesus talking about his own role, his own um, what he is doing in the life of of the disciples, Jesus famously again uses this very same terminology so this is jesus speaking now and he says this john chapter 10 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep so when he sees the wolf coming he abandons the sheep and runs away then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it The man runs because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Peter's understanding of what Jesus was doing with his people was formed and shaped by Jesus's description of himself as the good shepherd. Now fast forward, uh, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, if you remember, Jesus or Peter has opportunity in those events to identify himself with Jesus, and three times he says, I, I don't know the guy. In fact, I don't, I don't want anything to do with him. He denies him three times. Jesus raises from the dead, and, and the call that he's placed on Peter's life, his purpose, and what he has in store for him has not changed. And so Jesus and Peter have this encounter. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Peter's out fishing and he calls him in and he makes him breakfast. And he sits down with him and he has this conversation to restore him. And so at the end of John's Gospel, it, it's, this records this conversation. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of, Don, uh, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. For the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So so Jesus' restorative conversation with Peter as he's launching him in to the ministry that he has this is a critical role as an apostle, as a proclaimer of the gospel, everything that's going to unfold over the next years, how does he form and shape that understanding in Peter's life? He says, I want you to do the same things that I have been doing with you. As I have been a shepherd to you, I want you to be a shepherd to your people. And now Peter is speaking to leaders within the church, and when he wants to shape and form and their understanding of that role, he says the very same thing that Jesus said to them. Take care of God's flock. Protect them. Provide for them. And yes, I it's... Jesus here, or excuse me, Peter here, is talking to the leaders of the church. That is clear. But I also think it's fair to apply this instruction to anywhere in our lives where we exert spiritual influence and leadership. So whether we think of that in terms of, of my role as a pastor, or if you think of it in terms of these Couples that were standing up here as parents with their children, if you think of it in terms of a D group leader sitting with high school students on a Sunday night, if you think of our middle school kids right now serving down the hall with our elementary age kids, where you in your life have opportunity to exert spiritual influence, spiritual leadership in the life of somebody else, Peter's instruction to us as the church is to be a shepherd. To care for God's flock. Right? And for us to do that, in order to exert that sort of leadership, that sort of influence in our lives, we as shepherds have to be connected to and know the heart of the good shepherd. And it's not, Peter points out, it's not about praise that you might receive. It's not about profit, and it's certainly not about power. But rather, it's to set an example of a life lived in obedience to Jesus. This is, this is Peter's first exhortation. And then he says to those under the leadership of the elders, he says to those that are, you, are younger, he says, submit to that, follow that, receive that. And then he goes on from there and he gives us a second exhortation here. And the second exhortation that we see in this passage is to be humble. To be humble. Now in verse 5, Peter says this, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you i don't know how how the idea of humility sits with you i think oftentimes in my life i am somewhat resistant to that idea because i associate humility with embarrassment and and being embarrassed can be humbling but they're not the same thing right i i know what it is to be embarrassed I was a middle school kid, I played an entire band concert as a percussionist with my fly down and my shirt tail coming out, right? <laughs> you don't recover from that as a seventh grader. Like, that's, that's embarrassing, and that can be humbling, but humility is not about being embarrassed. Humility is, is about truth. Humility is about our understanding of who God is and who we are. And so false humility, that, that sort of humility that kind of presents itself as like self-loathing or um, um, where yeah, like an inferiority complex. Like you, if you guys seen that, thats actually kind of, in my view, that's actually just kind of a different presentation of pride. Because it's actually trying to bring the attention back to me. That's not what scripture is teaching us here biblical humility rightly understood is understanding who I am in view of who God is let me say that again biblical humility is rightly understanding who I am in view of who God is so it is a truthful and accurate understanding of my worth and my value as an image bearer of my creator God and that comes alongside my, my need and my de- total dependence on Him in my life. Particularly, right, as when it comes to dealing with sin in my life. C.S. Lewis describes humility this way. He says, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So according to Lewis, our our capacity for humility is directly proportional to our understanding of how great God is. It's understanding who we are in view of who he is. And and Peter points out a couple things here that that are important for us to understand. When When we talk about this experience of, and being humble. He talks about, notice this correlation that he draws between humility and and relationship, or if we were to say this conversely, I think we could say it that pride is a relationship killer, whether it's between us, the relationship that we share together, or between myself and God. Peter writes in verse 5, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Right? And then he goes on to quote from the book of Proverbs here, and he said, because God opposes the proud, and that word there, opposes, literally means sets himself up against. So I don't know if you can imagine like, a worse place to be than a spot where, where you have taken a position where God is like, I'm going to set myself up against that, because I'm, I'm acting like I'm God. He opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humility is essential in both our relationships with each other and in our relationship with God. So if I, if I don't accurately understand my need for grace, right? if, I don't, if I don't grasp my spiritual condition apart from Christ, my inability to rectify my spiritual need in and of my own power, it messes everything up. It's going to mess up my relationship with you because I'm going to be jockeying for position to be in a superior place than you. And it messes up my relationship with him. And when that is the case, when that is the reality, what inevitably results is pain and and conflict and perhaps worst of all, the, the image of the gospel that we portray to the world looking in wondering what's going on here is tarnished. And they get a skewed version of it. Secondly, though, I think humility also allows us to understand what is ours and what is his. Verse 7, Peter writes this. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I I always make the distinction here. We're, We're not talking about like a clinical anxiety disorder. We're talking about the general type of anxiety that we experience in humanity when we try to control the things that are outside of our control. Right? This year has been a year of me trying to control things outside of my control. Me wanting to take the reins, to set the timeline, to figure out, okay, we got to do this right now, then, and it's been at times kicking and screaming, screaming a humbling year. Because time after time after time, I've had to come to recognize things that I control, what I, how I respond, what I say, the ways that I lead, my own, my own response, and what he controls. And it turns out he controls way more than I do. See, humility allows us to, to make the distinction. It allows us to understand what is under his control and his sovereignty. And allows me to actually live in obedience to Jesus and his kingdom when I place, when I trust him for the things that he is in control of and when I seek to follow him in obedience to the things that I am in control of. It's necessary to understand what is ours and what is his. So Peter has exhorted us. He says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to be shepherds. And there's something that I want you to be. I want you to be humble. And then there's a third exhortation here. And he says, it's something I want you to look out for. And so he says to the church, I want you to be alert. Church, I want you to be alert. Verse 8 and 9, Peter writes this. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. I mentioned to you that a lot of these trips that I've taken with students and for years, and I know they're looking forward to when they can again, one of those trips was on, um, down to Ecuador. Um, in fact, I, I love these experiences so much because you would see so much fruit in students' lives as they engaged and participated, totally outside of their comfort zone. And so we would take these students on this excursion into the jungle. And in this one particular trip, we had the opportunity to stay at this, it's, it's kind of like a jungle resort, they called it. Like it was, it was in the jungle. So it was not in like a jungle city. It was just in the, in the middle of the jungle and um and one evening we were kind of wrapping things up and the students were getting ready for bed and one of the students came up and just said hey pastor sterling can we just sit down and talk for a while and this is like this is what i live for right it's just that's what these trips give us and so we just sat down and we're sitting on this kind of garden wall just talking and he's sharing some things going on in his life and i'm praying with him and about this time, one of the employees of this hotel comes walking by and sees us sitting out there and walks over and he just says, hey, I, um, you might want to be heading off to your rooms pretty soon. And I just kind of like explained, like, I, I'm the pastor. I'm just talking with, we'll wrap up soon. And he goes, totally cool. He's like, this is just the time of night that the snakes have a tendency to come out. I was like, I think we'll go. We'll go now. Like now is good, <laughs> right, for me. Um, and I'm like every like I could I you could not have been more in the middle of the path as I was walking back than I was and like every little noise everything like my senses were were on high alert right and this is this is what Peter writes to the church here knowledge informs alertness in other words Peter says wake up they like, pay, pay attention church hey, don't be caught off guard because you're naive to the fact that there is an enemy and his purpose is to devour and to destroy to prevent us from fulfilling this this high calling as followers of jesus that peter has been describing and unpacking for us over the course of these five chapters and i find i find peter's um, metaphor his allusion to this roaring lying to be interesting specifically this element of the roar. Because what is, what is the purpose of a lion's roar? Have you ever heard in real life a lion roar? Most of the time you go to the zoo, right? They're just laying there. like nodding. You're like, there, are, they, are those real? Like, and you get excited, like if you see a tail wag or something. You're like, that one moved, that one moved. Did you guys see that? And one time my family was, was at the zoo, and this lion stands up and just, Let's out a roar. And Sherry, I was on a mission trip at the time. She said, You could feel it in your ribcage. Like you could feel the power. That's, that's the objective of the roar, right? It, it's to communicate power, it's to instill fear. Again, remember, this letter is being written to these followers of Jesus that are actively experiencing persecution. They're suffering as a result of their faith in Jesus. And Peter reminds the church in the midst of that, he says, don't forget that there is an enemy. There's an enemy who's going to attempt to convince you that he holds the power and that you should be afraid. There's an enemy that is going to attempt to use this experience of suffering to manipulate you into believing that God isn't who he said he is and that you can't trust him. In fact, if you trace this back, this has been his strategy from day one. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Did God really say that he holds the power and that you should be afraid? And Peter says to the church, he says, don't be ignorant. Right? Don't, don't be unaware, but rather stand firm. Actively resist him, Peter writes. And how do we do that? What does that look like? What what makes that possible for us? Peter's whole point throughout this letter, it's the promise of God. In fact, when you look at these exhortations in chapter 5, after he talks about the importance of of shepherding, of caring for God's flock, he says this in verse 4. He says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory That will never fade away. It's exhortation backed by promise. After he talks about the importance of humility and being alert in verse 10, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Throughout this entire letter, Peter has consistently taught us that living for Jesus, even when it's marked by pain and suffering and persecution, living for Jesus is both possible and it's worth it because of the promise. Because you and I are a people of a living hope. Remember, this entire letter is grounded in chapter 1, verse 3. We've been reciting this. We've been talking about this throughout this this entire series. But, But Peter says this to the church. This is at the outset of his letter. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This entire letter rests on that promise. He says because of that, because when you shepherd well, he said there is a crown of glory that never fades. Because of that, when, when you experience difficulty and pain and suffering, there's the promise that he will restore you and make you strong, that we will be able to live lives that so accurate, re, accurately reflect his promise to us that an outside watching world can look at us and see something about him and as he wraps up this letter he says i I want you to be shepherds i want you to be humble and be alert because we are the people of a living hope let's pray together father we do just thank you for this time we thank you for the opportunity to be together in community to be able to celebrate these moments and god we thank you for your word We thank you for Peter's message, his encouragement and instruction. And Lord, we we recognize for him, this is personal. these, These are the commands that you left with him. And now he has passed them on to us as the church. And so God ground us in the promise that because of you, because of what you accomplished on the cross and because of your victory over the grave, That we are a people of a living hope. And that our security, our confidence is found in that. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.